Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Hey, fellas. Here's a letter from a girl named Mary who wants to know what you like to do in your spare time. Now you can tell her if you promise to do it nicely. Okay, great. Sure. Simon? I like to play baseball. Theodore? You know what's sort of sad? I sing that song around the house. I'm not kidding. I actually do sing that song around the house, when, usually when I'm doing the things that the chipmunks don't like to do. And I'm also just struck listening to it here on the radio, thinking there's a lot of stuff about pretty women in here. I mean, would the chipmunks get canceled today? It's an interesting question. Uh, however, what we're mainly talking about, and by the way, that song, which has kind of been transmogrified into a song called Things We Like to Do, NRBQ famously recorded it, but it was originally called Chipmunk Fun. Uh, so it's right on point. It's right on the nose today. We're doing a show about fun. We're doing it with one of our favorite previous guests, Catherine Price, uh, who was on to talk about how to break up with your phone uh, on a previous episode. Uh, and I said, you know, whatever your next book is, we'll just you're a great guest. We'll do a show with you. And, you know, for a lot of shows, that would be kind of a risky thing to say, because what if she did a book about vomit or something? So we'd love to do a show about vomit. That would be fun. But meanwhile, <laughs> her book is called The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. Uh, I can certainly relate to all of that. Uh, we're going to talk to Catherine today. She'll be with us pretty much the whole time. Joining us, uh, we don't know that many people who are actually really a lot of fun, uh, but joining us in the B segment, Julia Pistel, who, who is fun. I mean, like, you know, she's like notoriously fun. Uh, that's, that's her hip name, Notorious F-U-N. Uh, and then at the end, we're going to talk about uh, the laughter yoga movement with the certified instructor of same. But let's get going here with Catherine Price. Uh, as I say, her new book is The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. Uh, she's a science journalist, and she's the founder of ScreenLifeBalance.com. Hi, welcome back to our show. Thank you very much. I am thrilled to be here, and I'm laughing because, well, for many reasons, but one is that I've got a six-year-old. There's been a lot of chipmunks in my house recently. I mean, not literally, but yeah. those chipmunks, thankfully. Um, and I have never heard that song, and so I have a new source of delight to share with my daughter after this interview. And then second, I did not write about vomit, but I did write a whole series of pieces about sewage sludge once, yeah. so I was laughing about the... You know, do be you should be careful what you uh, invite me to do because you you can't tell what will be next. <laughs> we, look, 
I, we did a whole show about sewage sludge with Rose George. I'm not kidding. We actually Oh, did, my so. goodness. I just was <laughs> tweeting with her. She's a woman who wrote the book, The Big Necessity. Yeah. And without getting too distracted from the subject at hand, I once won a toilet. And so did she. And we clearly have a bond and need to um, need to yeah. be friends. So I'm glad you brought that up. Right. But anyway. So anyway, but yeah, the business, <laughs> the business at hand is not toilets or sewage no. sludge or vomit. Mm-hmm. It's fun. It's not even chipmunks. Uh, by the way, those are the old chipmunks. You have to know they're not the, the, the you know, they got rebooted. The, the, that recording was from the very original, like, 1960s chipmunks. So just so you know. Um, so your daughter doesn't get confused. I mean, they're the only ones that count. Right. So, yeah. So there's a term that you use in this book, and I, I think it's important. I think it sort of helps us get where we need to begin, and that is true fun. Because, in fact, the term fun is kind of slung around in all kinds of different ways. Uh, you're not talking about just every single person's idea of what fun is conversationally. You have more of a kind of platonic ideal in mind. So what is it? (laughs) It is a platonic ideal. Well, one thing I found really interesting when I started to research this book is that when I looked up the definition of fun in the dictionary, the words I found in there did not match the experience I personally found when I experienced was having what I called fun. So to back up, you know, I wrote this book called How to Break Up with Your Phone. And perhaps unsurprisingly, as a result, I ended up spending a lot less time on my phone. And I was feeling pretty, you know, self-satisfied. I, I felt like I'd figured things out, but then I I didn't anticipate the next problem I would face, which is that if you start spending less time on your phone, you're going to end up with a lot of free time and <laughs> need to figure out what to do with it. And I had this kind of come to Jesus, like existential crisis on this on my couch in the same room I'm sitting in right now, where I realized on this Saturday afternoon that without my phone to distract me, I actually had no idea what I wanted to do. And I started to ask myself this question. I'd ask people when I was researching that book, which is what's something you say you want to do, but supposedly never have time for, which I invite listeners to ask themselves too. And my answer was, well, I always say I want to learn to play guitar. And so I signed up for this guitar class. It was at this kid's music studio, but it was an adult class at night. It was BYOB. We got together on Wednesdays. We played guitar. And I started noticing that I was just enjoying myself so much during the class. And I had this feeling of energy and buoyancy that stayed with me for days afterwards. And it was amazing. It, it I'm a pretty happy person in general, but I, I felt like just so alive. And I really wanted to figure out what that feeling was. And the best word that came to mind was fun. So that's how I got started on the project. Like I really wanted to figure out, okay, if if this is fun, then what is fun? And then what is it doing that's making me feel so good? So what I quickly came to realize to go to your question is that there's really not a good agreed upon common definition of fun. You look it up in the dictionary, it'll say like lighthearted pleasure, but I wasn't just feeling lighthearted pleasure. I was feeling this profound sense of joy. And so I went through this whole research process. I recruited other people to give me examples of fun from their own lives to see if I was just kind of nuts and, and was overreacting to guitar. Um, I collected thousands of anecdotes from people around the world, and they helped me come up with this definition, which I believe holds true, which is that what I call true fun is the confluence of three emotional states, which is playfulness, connection, and flow. And I'd be happy to tell you more about each of those. But that is what I define as fun is when we are experiencing playful, connected flow. Right. And so to that to the middle uh, quality of the three that you've named, you probably would have had a minute, had a different experience if you were mostly playing guitar alone in a room by yourself. Right. There was something about this experience that I think anybody who's done music kind of collectively uh, realizes, which is it's just like way more fun with other people. Yes. And that's a really good point, because I actually. 
I, I have a musical background in that I, I've taken piano since I was a kid, since I was like five. It was completely different to play with other people. It, playing music alone, not the same. I like playing music alone. I've done it for years, but this was a different type of joy. I think it's, it, it taps into something that's referred to as collective effervescence. And I, for, forgive me, I can't remember who coined the term, but Adam Grant wrote a column about it a couple months ago. And it's just that, that feeling that you can get of a shared moment with people. And I think that's a fundamental element, if you will, of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's let's go through the other two. I want to hear some of the anecdotes you, you can collect it too. But as long as we've got these qualities on the table, so playfulness. Uh, I mean, playing guitar isn't necessarily inherently playfulness. So, what makes it playful for you? Is it that it's not your job? There's not that much on the line. You're not going to lose a patient on a on the table <laughs> if you if you play the wrong chord. No one's being harmed in the. Well, maybe their ears are being harmed but no one's physically being harmed in the process of hearing me play guitar. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. So if you say play to adults, they tend to like clench up and just, they, they just, it makes adults very uncomfortable because we think that playing has to be playing games or that it has to be a particular type of play. But what I'm talking about is playfulness, which is the spirit of play. And that is not caring too much about the outcome, having a spirit of lightheartedness, doing things just for the sake of doing them, even if there's no quantifiable output at the end, that's what I mean. And so to what, to your point, yes, guitar could be very much not playful if I cared too much about what it sounded like, or if I was performing in a high stakes environment. So it wasn't so much the playing of the guitar itself. That was the important part. It was the spirit of playfulness that we brought to the experience. And then flow and flow is a term that we really associate with one particular theorist whose name I could not begin to pronounce. But I, even <laughs> she though sent I, me hi. <laughs> yeah, even though I've been reading this name for decades now, I don't know how to say it. But flow is that notion of getting lost in something. Yes, and it's it's Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, and I know that because I did the audio book for my for this book. And <laughs> dear God, did I have to say that name a lot of times, and had to go do pickups for it. So anyway, Csikszentmihalyi, who unfortunately passed away a month or so ago, came up with this term flow, and it refers to the state of being totally engrossed and present in your activity at hand, often to the point that you lose track of time. Uh, it's very different from what he called junk flow, which is the more kind of hypnotized state we fall into. If, for example, we're just binge watching Netflix for seven hours at a time, that's really hypnosis, not flow. But we're talking like an athlete in the middle of a game or when you're lost in conversation with a friend or you're just completely engrossed in an activity or a project. It's That's flow. It's a very active and engaged state. So, you know, reading your book has struck me that I don't really have a lot of fun um, or a lot of... <laughs> Which is okay. You're not alone for yeah, what yeah. it's worth. <laughs> right. I don't have a lot of true fun. On the other hand, for my entire life, I actually remember the year would probably would have been around 1976, 77, something like that. I was just starting out in the newspaper business, a kind of rookie journalist in the newsroom. And, and you know, you get handed not really great tasks to do. And I can't remember what I was doing. It probably was not something not even connected to the following day's newspaper. But I, I, whatever it was, I was running up and downstairs between there and the press room. And while I was doing it, and this is very typical of me, I made up some little song or something about what I was doing. And I was singing the song while I did it running up and down the stairs. And I remember a, a somewhat older editor, her name was Irene Driscoll, looking at me and running into me on the stairway and, and looking at me and saying, does everything have to be fun for you? And I paused and I said, you know, kind of everything does have to be fun for me. And, and I don't mean, didn't mean that literally, but sort of my approach to fun is different from what's described in the book. I sort of try to make my life, my daily ongoing life, 
fun without necessarily, you know, getting lost in an activity, not without, not necessarily doing it as a group activity, uh, you know. But, yeah, maybe playfulness is something I just – I mean, anybody who works here at the com- this company even knows that if there's an interesting group mail that go- email that goes out to everybody, I'm very capable of turning it into a haiku and sending it back to everybody else or something, you know. I just sort of <laughs> feel like, like you should be doing that all day. But I don't know. I feel like I read your book and I thought, yeah, I'm missing something here. Oh, see, it's interesting because when I hear you talk about that, I would say that you're not missing it at all, that you're clearly embodying the spirit of the book and have done so for a really long time. Because I would say, you know, a couple of things. One is that playful connected flow can, happens all the time. I think one misperception and misconception we have is that it requires some kind of exotic experience or that it does need to be this like mind-blowingly, you know, mind-blowing experience that you remember for the rest of your life. But I, I get the sense that you experience it every single day on this show. Like right now I'm, I'm having true fun because I am <laughs> feeling playful and you and I are connecting and I'm in flow, you know? So I think that that's actually, and one of the important takeaways from my perspective, from my own book for myself was, Oh wait, this doesn't need to be an exotic thing. It happens all the time. I just need to call it out and label it as such. And I would say the things you're doing, you know, like making songs and haikus and things like that, reflect your playfulness, but they're invitations for fun. And I think that they probably do result in fun for yourself and for other people. So mm-hmm. you're bringing fun. I, I created this fun personality type quiz that I put on the book site, which is how to have fun.com. And I, I just, you know, broke down categories of personality types that stood out to me for types of fun. And you strike me as someone who'd be what I call a fun generator, which is someone who kind of brings the fun. You know, so that's exactly what you're doing. So anyway, I'm pushing back. I actually think yeah. you embody the spirit of the book. Yeah. Not everybody would 100% agree with that assessment of me, but um, <laughs> let, let me just ask this too. So one possible rejoinder to me, uh, and it's a, one that I make to myself actually, is it's a trap if you think work is fun. I mean, I happen to have a really fun job. I have a hard time thinking of something I could be doing in my leisure time between one and two most afternoons, it would be more fun than doing this show. But that, that, that you know, raises some questions, and these do come up in the book. Like, okay, so that's, that's your fun is the thing you do for work. I mean, there's that old saw, then you'll never work a day in your life, right? You know, if you, you're doing something that you, where you just are having a great time all the time, you're not really working. But maybe if you're working and having fun, you're also not really having true fun. No, I don't think that that's true at all. I think that the danger is that you don't want to only be trying to seek this out at work because I think that we focus too much. We we do devote too much of our energy towards work in the sense of things we do to be paid for, right? So I think that that's the problem is that we don't leave any time or energy for any other area of our life. But I would say that if you, that, that I think you probably do. I mean, you do have fun work. And that's wonderful. I don't think we should say like, okay, fun has to happen out of work. It's just that we want to make sure that we have both, that we have opportunities for playful connected flow in our professional lives as much as possible, but they were also creating boundaries with those professional lives so that we have the space to actually experience it and seek it out in other ways in our personal lives. And that I do think is something that many of us struggle with and that I'm hoping to encourage people to prioritize more than we traditionally have. You know, it's interesting as you're talking, I'm flashing back to a conversation I had about 40 years ago with 
Kinder and Ebb, John Kinder and Fred Ebb, famously, you know, they wrote Cabaret and Chicago and they wrote the song New York, New York. And so they were actually at a very beautiful theater by, on the river uh, restaging one of their musicals. And I asked them, I said, what happens when a director says, no, this song doesn't work in this spot in the show? Go write me another song. Does that, is that just like really, does that really disappoint you? And they both looked at me and they said, no, actually... That's like what we really like, you know. I mean, if someone tells us to go off by ourselves together in a room and write another song. We're really happy. That's that's like our favorite thing in the world to do. Uh, and I mean, that I think is right, you know, right in the the Catherine Price pipeline. You know, if the thing <laughs> you're being asked to do is the thing you would really like to do, and it's and it is, for, I'm sure it is for them. There, I'm sure they're in a total state of flow when they, you know, when they write some terrific song for for one of their shows. That's interesting. Yeah, I think that that what we're talking about right now, yeah, has to do with what we were just talking about in regards to playfulness, which just to get a little bit more precise about it. I know that I just said that it's about having this attitude of doing it just for the sake of doing it, which would make it seem that work can't be playful because you're doing it for an ulterior purpose, right? So I think that I would tweak that a little and just say that you bring the spirit of lightheartedness to it, but that that is really important to have opportunities for play in the sense of doing things just for the sake of doing them outside of work. So it's kind of twofold. You want to have a playful attitude towards your professional life as much as possible because you're going to enjoy it more and honestly be more creative and productive at it. But then you also want to set aside time. And again, this is something we all struggle with to do things just for the sake of doing them, where it's not about the money that you're going to get paid or the accolade you're going to receive or anything else. It is just because you enjoy it. Um, Out of curiosity, have you watched the series The Crown about the British royal family? No, I have not. My 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 parents have, and recommended highly. Well, <laughs> but I, I have not myself. I recommend it highly, especially a, an episode called the, the Valmoral Test. It's a season four, episode two, uh, and okay. and the whole po- point of this is that this British royal family, the Windsors, you know, and and they are, you know, I think they're considered to be a pretty somber, way faced group of people, uh, and and they certainly have done tremendous damage to one another, uh, and and to people who fall into their orbit too. But it shows them out at Balmoral, and and first of it, where they they have, there's two things they really like to do at Balmoral. It turns out one of them is stalking wild game, uh, and and ideally, I guess, killing <laughs> killing it. Uh, and then the other thing they like to do is they play these kind of idiotic after dinner games. They play charades, but they play this really complicated game that goes that involves going six dibble 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 ibble whatever. And so they have two visitors in this thing. I guess it's all based on reality. Margaret Thatcher and her husband come out, and they can't do any fun things. Uh, and, and at a certain point, Margaret Thatcher, who grew up under rather modest circumstances, says to Queen Elizabeth, well, f- my father taught me what fun is. Fun Work is fun. We would work together when I was a girl. Work was our fun. And it just comes across. I mean, I don't have any great veil of sympathy for Margaret Thatcher. But it's like the saddest thing I've ever heard anybody say. And then oddly enough, uh-huh. the, the next person to come out is Diana, Diana Spencer, who just kills fun. I mean, she's just great at it. She's great at stalking wild game. And she's great at playing every stupid charades type game and everything like that. And then you, you realize, oh, but this is like a, a, 
a, a spider web. You know, <laughs> she's crawling out onto this web, thinking, "Oh, they like me. This is fun. They know how to fu- have fun." But it's it, it's a bait, you know, almost. And I don't even know what question I'm asking you, other than to say it, it really is sort of you know, fun can work in lots of different ways. And it seems to me like the royal family they have these very sort of circumscribed, set aside ideas of fun. We'll go someplace else, Balmoral, and we'll kill a stag or we'll play charades, and that'll be when we're having fun. And to me, there's something a little gloomy about that. <laughs> I'm not sure what question you're asking either, I but yeah, I, I, I enjoyed that. I have a lot of thoughts based on that. First of all, I probably wouldn't have fun with them myself. So I hate charades really like a lot. Um, and I don't think I'd want to kill a stag, but I mean, a walk outside might be nice. But anyway, I think one thing that you're bringing up that I came across in my research is that while I would argue that our moments of true fun are these moments of playful connected flow, we each find them in different ways and it can't be forced upon someone. So if you're like, you will have fun because you're going to come out with like my, my, on this fox hunt or whatever, (laughs) and then we're going to, you know, pantomime, like that doesn't, that's, that's a hard sell when it like fun will run away in many cases. But what I found is that, again, while the while the state of playful connected flow seems to be universal, we find it in different ways. And it's important to think about that question about what brings fun for us personally. What, what is the most likely to generate it? Because that's when we can start to actually incorporate more fun into our lives. So just to give an example, like I think of, I use the term fun magnets for this. And a fun magnet is the activities and the people and the settings that are the most likely to generate fun for you personally. And you can figure out, get a sense of what some of them are just by calling to mind some of your past experiences of true fun, you know, that you would describe as having been so fun and ask yourself, who were you with and what were you doing and where were you? Because once you get this collection of kind of fun magnets, you can say, all right, like I can't guarantee I'm going to have fun by putting fun on my calendar for Saturday tonight. I mean, Saturday night, that would be a fool's errand, but you can say, for example, in my case, I know that getting together with this particular group of people and playing music is a fun magnet for me. And I can set aside for that, you know, a clear time on my schedule by spending less time on what I refer to as fake fun, which is basically activities that are marketed to us as fun, but that don't actually nourish us. They're kind of like junk food. It's like social media is the biggest offender here, but you know, binge watching TV to the point that your eyes glaze over and it's no longer enjoyable, like cut back on some of that stuff. You'll have more time for your actual fun magnets. And the more of those you incorporate into your schedule, the more fun you're likely to have. But like, yeah, I can tell you for sure. And it's funny that you bring up charades. That is literally one of my aunt. I think of them as anti-fun factors is anything that is close to charades. I can't do it. I hate it. It makes me uncomfortable and self-conscious and self-critical. And those are antithetical to fun. You cannot right. have fun if you are judging yourself and feeling self-conscious and in my case, having to pantomime. <laughs> the um, Yeah. I mean, you know, uh, Betsy Kaplan, the producer of this episode is referring to this as forced fun. Uh, and mm, we, we, yeah, used to, we, used, we used to have this little sing-songy thing that we would say about that too. And some of my groups of friends, well, organized fun, you know, organized fun just doesn't really sound fun. Well, before we go to break here, and I want to uh, get Julia into the conversation, there, there is... I think a lot of us have in our lives 
these the, the person who comes along and gets us to rebel a little bit, you know, gets us to sort of. I I, I had a friend in college. Uh, his name was Scott Sherman, uh, and I, freshman year it was just clear to me he wasn't having any fun. He didn't even know me very well, and I just invaded his life and I dragged him out of his room and I dragged him out of the library and I probably lowered his GPA ever so slightly, although he graduated Phi Beta Kappa, so not that much. But I just sort of said, "No, we're having fun. You're going to have fun today." And my friend Peter Shapiro did that with me, too. And sometimes this involves breaking some rules or doing some things that maybe you're not exactly supposed to do. I mean, we're not talking about robbing a 7-Eleven or something, or maybe we are. Who knows? But No, uh, no, no, we're not. We're, we're not. not. We're not. <laughs> Public service announcement. We're not talking about that. Okay. No, no robbing 7-Elevens. <laughs> but, you know, there is, well, it's expressed, I think, pretty well in, in the cinema classic, uh, Risky Business. Here's Tom Cruise, who's been sort of trying to grind out his way a little bit into a halfway decent college. I think this is his much smarter friend, talking to him sometimes you gotta say what the make your move that's easy for you to say i mean you're all set you're probably going to harvard me i don't want to make a mistake jeopardize my future joel you want to know something what every now and then say what the gives you freedom freedom brings opportunity opportunity makes your future all right so actually they do go on to organize a prostitution ring in joel's house that's probably also not a good example more in that category of robbing 7-elevens but i think that point of having somebody say to you let's break some rules like maybe some little rules i mean that's very much the idea of that's in your book yeah, I mean, I love that. I love that clip that you just played. I mean, maybe without the prostitution ring, but I think that's exactly it. Also, you're totally a fun generator, 100%. I've never pegged someone so accurately, um, but it's very clear because you're dragging people out to have fun. Anyway, but yes, I found when I was looking through the anecdotes people shared with me that there was this interesting theme of what I thought of as playful rebellion running through them, this little bit of deviance, where it was people doing things that were slightly outside of the normal way they were supposed to behave. And it didn't have to be actually breaking any official rules, although that can be fun as long as they don't harm yourself or other people, but just little things that that contradict what you'd think of as a typical responsible adult. And just as an example from my own life that I had this past weekend, um, as I said, I've been playing a lot of music. One of the main sources of fun in my life is getting together with friends to play music. I'm also super COVID cautious. And so I was supposed to go to what I thought was an outdoor open mic on Friday and it ended up being indoors. So I skipped it, but I texted my friends and I said, Hey, anyone want to meet in this parking lot? I'm 43 years old. I want to meet in this parking lot, like after that's over and just play music together, you know, see what happens. So we did that and we got together and I stayed out till three o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning. I go to bed at 10. I was destroyed on Saturday. And I have to tell you, it was so worth it. We had this special shared experience, which is a term I heard come up. It came up again and again in people's anecdotes, a special shared experience with these friends of mine, just doing something that was like a little out of the ordinary, not what you'd think like responsible adults or parents would do, you know, staying out in a parking lot. I mean, I was drinking mostly tea myself, but drinking beers and like playing music together too loudly, you know, it was, but it was so fun. And I can tell you it is continuing to nourish me. It's what Tuesday it's going to keep me like little moments like that is what that's, what's going to keep us going through whatever the coming months may bring. And I really want to emphasize to people that it, 
fun is not just like a, it's not frivolous and it's not just kind of a nice thing that happens occasionally and you can enjoy it when it happens. It actually is essential for our happiness and health and our resilience. And the more we can find opportunities to experience it, or even just little moments of playfulness and connection and flow, the better we're going to be able to be able to cope with this next phase of everything. All right. Betsy Kaplan, the producer, is not having fun right now because we didn't go to the break in time. So we're going to go to the break and Betsy Kaplan will therefore have fun. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. You know, there's a profound lesson in this song. And Mike Love did not write a lot of lyrics with profound lessons. But at the end of the song, the daddy does take the T-Bird away. He took the set of keys. And she's thinking that her fun is all through. But then the singer says, oh, come along with me. We've got a lot of – it turns out it wasn't the T-Bird. The T-Bird was not where the fun was. The fun was in connections to other people. So in a way, the Beach Boys kind of saw Catherine Price and her book coming way back when. Catherine Price is the author of The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. Uh, You don't need a T-Bird. You just need uh, somebody to connect with and do something else that's fun. Uh, and go to the hamburger stand on foot if necessary. Uh, joining us now, uh, we have Catherine with us for the entire show. Joining us now, we thought, well, do we know anybody who has a lot of fun? Oh, boy, was that an easy one. <laughs> Julia Pistel, 
Well, she conspicuously has fun. She's the owner of CT Improv, uh, host of the Literary Disco podcast, a guest producer at CT Public, uh, is in fact working on a couple of very exciting episodes for this particular show. She's also a freelance writer. And somehow, amid all of that, she seems to have a lot of fun. So, Julia Pistel, welcome to our conversation. Always happy to be here. <laughs> so how is this possible that you have so much fun? Oh, man, what an opener. Um, well, first of all, I, as I told Betsy, I think for me at this point, fun is, and I mean this sincerely, it's almost like a spiritual practice. Um, it's definitely my highest value. You know, if I were to make a family crest, it would be right at the top. Um, I just, it's, it's something that has sort of come up throughout my life. And I'm always in pursuit of fun. And um, through my improv work, I'm also now someone who professionally teaches other people to have fun. And that has been really exciting and rewarding and has also given me a lot of insight into the things that Catherine um, has been talking about. So, so yeah, I just, I try to have fun um, as often as possible, which is not all the time, but I, I do squeeze in a lot. So, Catherine, you know, in a way, I'm listening to Julia, and it's a little bit like meditation. If you make time in your day for meditation, you have a meditation practice, and then presumably you will derive tremendous benefits, so I'm told, anyway, from it. And it's kind of, it's, it seems like she's kind of describing the same thing, right? You make time in your day, make fun a practice the way yoga or meditation might be a practice. Yes, but I think that um, yoga and meditation feel like work, whereas fun feels like joy. So I actually wanted to ask Julia a question, which is yes. if you can expand and expound upon what you mean, like why is it your highest value in a spiritual practice to you? What do you feel when you experience it? Why do you find it so important? Um, well, first, Catherine, you must know my goal is for you know you and I to have fr become friends. Um, because Done. Let's do it. I, I love your I love your stuff. Um, I feel like when I'm having fun, um, life just feels more worthwhile. It really, uh, the connection aspect is huge for me. Um, but also it's, it's feeling very present, very present with what you're doing and feeling like comfortable with who you are. Um, and one thing I wanted to mention is that I think an essential component of having fun is not constantly evaluating how well you're doing, if you're good at something, if you're bad at something, um, do I suck at this? I think a lot of true fun, you have to embrace sucking at something or just dismiss that as, as something itself. So when I'm having fun, it's sort of like a release from any identity crisis, any anxiety you're just there doing your thing but, so that's what it feels like when i have fun but i want to i want to feed that back uh, at the whole idea of improv which yeah. and we should say full disclosure i've performed with julia's troupe although i don't get to they don't let me do improv i do like this other thing and then they do improv but but i'm fascinated by improv and it looks like people are really yeah. really having so much fun there so say a little bit about how yes. does that fit into your theory of fun well, improv is really interesting because it, you know, it is fun, but it's also very hard and a lot of people hate it um, <laughs> because there it's terrifying. You know, you're getting up there and making stuff up um, on the spot. So I think what is wonderful about improv is this effervescent 
ephemeral quality where you do something and then when it's done, it will never be done again. So you really have to enjoy the moment. And we actually have a saying in improv, follow the fun. So if you're creating something, if you're creating a scene and there's like a part of it that you're like, well, I guess we should do this part, but I really like this part. That's the part of the scene you want to move towards. Um, and I'll give you an example. Last night I did an improvised Christmas musical, which is the most fun that I personally ever have is improvising full musicals. Um, and we did a, a story about orphan boys who are extreme skateboarders. And we really liked the extreme <laughs> skateboarding. And so that became the theme of the musical. Um, and we just collectively decided to follow the fun. Um, but the other thing please, I, about please, improv, please, Mr. Hawk, may I have more food? <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna we're gonna let you do improv one day, Colin. I promise. Okay. Um, but the other thing about improv that I have observed from teaching it is that you have to give each other permission to have fun. It's not like every individual's, you know, sole responsibility to make things fun for themselves. You know, like it's hard to have fun unless the person you're with is sort of giving you permission, like. Oh, let's let's do this. Let's make this a game. Hey, let's go bowling, but not keep score. Or, hey, let's add this other game into our Secret Santa or whatever, whatever fun thing you're doing. Um, fun is really social, and we need other people to allow us to have fun. Um, so I spend a lot of time giving fun away. Right. I think so it's really, yeah. Go ahead. Go. No. Go ahead. No, Catherine. I was say it's really, really interesting, and it brought to mind a couple of things for me. One is that <laughs> I think. So I think this is a great example of what we were talking about before about how certain things that are paths to fun and playful connected flow for some people are not for others. I love improv. I love watching it, but I've taken an improv class and it was one of the few things in my life that, that I still am humiliated to think about. And that was, oh my goodness, it was like 17 years ago. So I think it's interesting because when you're talking about like the beauty and the joy of creating this ephemeral thing with other people that will never be experienced again what it made me realize is like, okay, I didn't find that myself through doing improv, but I find it through swing dancing. Like that's yeah. something I love about being in a dance with someone is that it will never happen again. And you're totally in tune with each other and you're following each other and you're, you're just creating this experience in this piece of art in some ways. I mean, maybe not a great piece of art, but it's like, you're creating this thing together. This experience, I should say this experience is I don't think it's about the ultimate outcome. It's just you are in it in the moment and you're present. And in all those cases, just as you're saying, if you're like at all self-conscious or judgmental, then it's not going to work. Um, so just yet yeah, as an example of like different paths people find. But one thing I wanted to ask if you would talk to the audience about that I include in my book in the sense of creating what I call a fun mindset is the improv philosophy of yes and and how that plays into both improv and to your perception of fun. Yeah, totally. So yes, and is the idea that whatever comes at you, you accept it and you build upon it. So sometimes I replace it when I'm teaching it with accept and build. So saying yes to something and then finding a way to enjoy it. So um, yeah, speaking to a Connecticut audience, like we all know it's going to snow. It's going to snow soon, right? It's going to get freezing and icy and we all hate it to some degree. But how can you yes and this inevitable horrible winter we always have? Well, I was walking over here um, and I saw this tiny patch of ice on the road and I saw these two little boys pretending this 
I mean, this was like one square foot, so tiny. They were pretending it was an ice skating rink and pretending they were hockey players. Um, and that's a great example of yes and. They're like, yeah, there's ice on the ground and we're going to pretend we're playing hockey. Um, so I think for me, yes and is, is really embedded in my everyday now. Um, and that's that's the benefit that actually a lot of people get out of improvising, not just theater, but improvising music as well is saying like, yep, this is the key I'm playing in. This is the scene I'm doing. And how can I accept where I am right now and make it into what I want or what's the next step from here? You know, I think just, also accepting that. Oh, sorry. No, you know, go ahead. Keep talking. You <laughs> no, keep we're talking. shutting you out. Here. Yeah, now that's OK. But <laughs> uh, it's, it's better with you guys talking. No, I was just going to say that I think the improvisation is a really interesting example because when I play music, one of the things that terrifies me the most is improvisation and I, I'm bad at it. Like I'm, I'm really working on trying to become more free and like letting go and being able to do that. And it just brings to mind the idea that if there's other people out there like me who feel like themselves clench up at the idea of that, it doesn't have to be big. And I think, Julia, that's what you're saying. Like it's just opening yourself up to these possibilities that are around us all the time. And your example yeah. of the little boys with the with the, <laughs> the ice skating rink puddle reminds me of something that I write about in the book, the idea of noticing delights as part mm -hmm. of adopting a fun mindset. And that was inspired by this guy, Ross Gay, a poet who wrote a book about, um, he wrote an essay every day about something that delighted him. And the idea that he puts out in that book is really simple, that you just make a point of noticing delights. And when they occur, you actually stick a finger in the air and you say out loud, delight. And when I looked into the the, the science behind that, there's actually a lot of evidence that that labeling positive experiences with the physical gesture and sharing them with other people actually really does boost our mood. So I think that you just give a beautiful example of what I would consider to be a daily delight that you enjoyed that brought you a moment of joy. And then now you're sharing with us. And when it, you told that story, you can't see me, but like it made me smile because <laughs> I could, well, it brought me delight. Yeah. And I, I think, um, you know, I think about our habits and I see it when I'm teaching him. I've also taught a lot in corporate environments and that is so, so interesting. Um, but people are very quick to label negative experiences. You know, like how often do you walk out of something and you're like, oh, that sucked. And then you kind of like analyze what was bad about it. But how often do you say like, oh, that was amazing. And then spend five minutes chewing on why you liked it. I mean, we're much more in the habit of, you know, thinking about <laughs> why things don't work than why things do work. Um, and I'll give another example, because for me, the anxiety around fun comes around sports. Um, but everyone in my family is very athletic, except for me. Um, and I still play along and I have as much fun as I can. But my husband noticed, you know, when he joined the family, he was like, wait, you guys never keep score. Um, and that I had never even noticed that, but we'll play beach volleyball or basketball or something, but there's never, you know, a ranking of who's winning. It's like the act of playing is what's fun, not the winning and losing and keeping score. I, I did that with kids for a long time. I would organize a Sunday afternoon soccer game with a group of kids and we would not keep score. And the new kids were always kind of startled. And it was really <laughs> fun when, when one of the other kids would go, oh no, we don't keep score. Uh, because they just they, they'd bought in. I just want to say, you know, apropos of the Ross Gay thing, uh, one thing that that made me think of when I read about it in the book is a, a play called Every Brilliant Thing, which I think you might still be able to see on HBO. It's by Duncan McMillan and Johnny Donahoe. Johnny Donahoe is the actor who who 
propels the thing. And it's about a boy whose mother is suicidal. And his way of dealing with this is to come up with a list of brilliant, in the British sort of sense of brilliant, you know, everything, every wonderful, terrific thing. And, it, you know, he gets into the thousands. And, and, and Don, the, it's, this is performed very much with the audience. And the audience is kind of pulled in into what is almost improv. And it's magnificent. And it's exactly that idea. Uh, of, you know, finding things to delight you, uh, particularly as an antidote maybe to, to profound sorrow. Uh, well, listen, we, we have to take a break. Uh, I can tell that Julia uh, and Catherine could have their own podcast. They probably will in a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll let you know which platform it's on. Meanwhile, let's take a break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about laughter and yoga. You know how I feel River running free Crowded? Ugh. How are you? Not bad. Good. I noticed you were alone at the party. Oh, you did notice that? Yeah. Are you dating? No. No. Why not? You, you know what? A, a date is an experience you have with another person that makes you appreciate being alone. LOL. LOL. You, you, you like saying that, don't you? It's cute, right? Nah, not, not, not really. What do you mean? I mean, if you're going to laugh out loud, why aren't you laughing out loud? Why say it? Why not just laugh? I am laughing. That's what that is. It's me that's laughing. No, you're saying LOL. You're verbal texting. All right. So that's a perfect setup for what we're uh, going to talk about right now. But before we do, uh, I want to thank senior producer emeritus of The Colin McEnroe Show, Betsy Kaplan, who is back uh, producing this show. And, of course, uh, Kat Pastor, our technical producer, the person firing off all the clips and the music and making the show actually run. Uh, with us uh, the entire way today is Catherine Price, most recently the author of The Power of Fun, How to Feel Alive Again. And then joining us now is uh, Liliana DeLeo, a certified laughter yoga master, trainer, and the founder of Living Laughter. Uh, she once also dabbled as a stand-up comic. Um, so, um, for people who aren't familiar, Liliana, maybe just begin by explaining the premise of Laughter Yoga. You bet. So, Laughter Yoga, the laughter is laughing for no reason. There's no jokes, humor, comedy. And I like to call it dynamic breathing. So, inhale and we'll exhale with the sound of continuous ha-ha-ha. The yoga part, let's not get scared by that for non-yoga practitioners, but the yoga is really all about deep breathing and stretching. And when I discovered laughter yoga 15 years ago, I was very intrigued because, yeah, I dabbled a little bit in stand-up comedy and I love to laugh and I love making people laugh, but what was laughter yoga? And when I discovered that this was an exercise and a very serious one at that, at first, I didn't like it because it's odd. It's awkward. But then when I started understanding the dynamics, the power behind laughter and all the benefits that it involves, I was hooked. And here then came living laughter. And today it's, it's a business I run and I am having the time of my life. So <laughs> that's what laughter yoga is. 
Right. It's not an entirely new idea. I remember in the 1960s and 70s, Norman Cousins, a very famous magazine editor, got terribly sick. uh, And he concluded on his own that laughing would, in fact, help him deal with the tremendous pain he was going through. It would allow him to sleep. uh, And and he started intentionally inducing not really what you're doing. I mean, he would seek out things, Marx Brothers movies, uh, things like that, that, and and James Thurber essays and stuff that that would make him laugh, things that he really thought were funny. And, And he really did feel and and ignited a, a whole movement of people who really thought that, that there was some kind of therapeutic benefit, a physical therapeutic benefit from laughing. But Catherine, I know you, you have some questions for Liliana, and I want to make sure we get those in. So uh, so fire yeah. away. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say both, both this and also when we're talking about improv and swing dancing that strike me as examples of something I've come to think of as playgrounds for fun, which are these structures that sometimes are really obvious and sometimes they're a bit more subtle, but that help us get into this state of playful connected flow, um, which I just like as an idea, because you start to notice that a lot of our experiences that we consider fun actually have this structure baked into them that we might not acknowledge. But so I think what you're talking about is like, I feel myself clench up when you're like laughter yoga, which I'm sure many people do too. And so I was wondering if you could talk a bit more about how you get people past that point and how your experience watching a typical class unfold, where I would imagine that even these people who clearly signed up for laughter yoga with you probably are inhibited at first. Like what happens where where's, what's the changing moment in these classes? Can you tell us a bit? Absolutely. So I compare it to basically everything you were talking about earlier. This is like a training program to help us get to that state of playfulness, connection and flow. So just like fitness, going to a gym at first, you are pushing through this resistance. It doesn't feel good. Ah, it's, it's, it's slightly painful. And what I remind people is think of it as exercise in the beginning. Yes. You're going to feel that awkward, that, that, that resistance, but as we keep practicing, if you commit to it after week one, week two in fitness, actually, because that is my background in fitness, usually after week six, you start seeing a difference. It gets easier. You become stronger. And that's what I loved about laughter yoga. Not only does it increase our physical strength, because there's many parts of the bodies that benefit uh, with the exercise of laughter, the heart, the lungs, the brain, it's an abdominal workout. When you laugh, 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 your abdominals are contracted, but it's also emotional well-being that that sets in and it increases our emotional well-being. I like telling my students, think of it, you're engaging in an action. This is what we're doing right now. We are acting, we are engaging in laughter. And when you think of laughter, what do you connect laughter to? Most people will say, well, it's fun, it's, it's, it's stress-free, people are happy, and that's the ticket. So in order to increase that state of happiness, by engaging in the action, we get to feel it more and more and more. So mm. now, alas, alas, get that. Uh, yeah. yeah, alas, we are we're pretty much out of time now, and I I hate that because I, this is a, a longer conversation. But I, I want to thank Catherine Price, author of The Power of Fun: How to Feel Alive Again. Liliana DeLeo, certified laughter yoga master trainer and the founder of Living Last Laughter. Uh, yeah, we're talking neurochemicals and hormones and things like that. And you want to be awash in the good ones and and have the bad ones receding from you like swamp water. And that's what the premise, part of the premise of, of laughter yoga. Uh, we hope you had fun today. We had fun doing the show. We always do. 